Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I'm joined by Harlan Zimmerman to discuss using management incentive plans to drive decarbonisation and net zero. Harlan is a senior partner of Savion Capital with responsibilities across investment, engagement, and in the management of the firm itself. He is also responsible for sustainability at Savion. Harlan was involved in setting up Savion at its founding in 2003. In 2007, he opened the firm's office in London, where he has been based ever since. Prior to Savion, Harlan worked in private equity, listed equities, and banking. Harlan is a 1992 graduate of the Lauder Institute of the University of Pennsylvania, where he earned an MBA in finance from Wharton and an MA in international relations. He is also a holder of a BA in international relations in Russian from the University of California, Davis. Welcome to the podcast, Harlan. Thank you. So let's start with Savian and your own career. How did the firm come into being and how did your career bring you to the point of helping this startup back in 2003? The firm was really launched in 2002 when two of my colleagues, Lars Forberg and Christo Gardell, moved from a listed investment company, which they had been managing in Sweden, to create Sevian. And I was with another firm that backed the creation of Sevian, and I worked on it at its inception as an investment committee member and as a board member. And in 2007, I joined full-time as a third partner to open the London office. Essentially, what we did was take and adapt the investment strategy, which Lars and Krister had developed and very successfully employed in Sweden, and house it in Sevian and begin to apply it more broadly in Europe. You must be very proud of the success of, of the company. Today, it's probably one of Europe's most recognized activist investment firms, and you take pretty large uh, positions in public companies. In terms of the investment approach itself, how many companies do you typically invest in at one time, and do you focus on specific sectors? So we invest only in European listed companies. We typically own 10 to 15 companies at a time. And essentially, the strategy is to focus on a very limited number of opportunities usually two or so new investments a year. And these are in companies that are fundamentally sound, where we think we can buy into good long-term fundamentals at attractive valuations, but also where we believe these companies could do things differently to become better, more profitable, more sustainable companies over time, and thus more valuable for ourselves, for other shareholders and other stakeholders as well. That's been the same strategy since we began in 2003. And was there a particular reason why you focused on Europe rather than going outside Europe to the US or to Asia? There have been a few reasons. One, uh, initially, this was the region that we knew, um, where we had already begun to build up a track record and some relationships that are valuable in our sort of investment activity. Um, But secondly, we felt that the governance frameworks here were more conducive to our sort of hands-on and constructive involvement. So we're commonly joining the boards of the companies. It's it's been about 75% of the cases over time, but without having a proxy fight. 
And we're able to do that because of the governance frameworks, the relationships that we have, the style of investments that we make. One big distinction, as I guess most listeners will know, between um, most European companies and US companies is the separation of power between the chair and the CEO. Whereas in many, many cases in the US, still the chair and CEO are the same person. In Europe, that's not so common. And effectively, what, what we see ourselves as doing in many cases is going in and help the board do a better job in its role of helping set the strategy for the company and ensure that there's the right ambition level and the right accountability to drive long-term performance. And in terms of your own career, you've we've mentioned you've done listed equities and private equity. Savien is focused on listed equities. Often people go the other direction. So from your perspective, what was the attractiveness of going from perhaps private equity into, into the listed side? Well, our strategy really straddles two areas. So of course, there is an element of traditional deep value investing. So doing um, quite intensive analysis on, on companies that will often include 100, 150 meetings with people in the ecosystem of the company before we make an investment. But the second and third aspects of it are the adding value to the company. So identifying concrete measures, typically strategy and structure changes, operational improvements, financial improvements, used to be governance improvements, and now we'd say ESG improvements more broadly to make those companies better and more valuable. So that's an aspect of private equity. And then the third aspect is the making it happen, which is um, a separate category that uh, is maybe a little less scientific, but it's one of the interesting aspects of of what we, we do, having to analyze the receptiveness for change across the entire ecosystem of the company. So we kind of straddle both worlds and um, with this extra component, and it's made it very interesting for me. And I, I would say also for my fellow partners, there are 13 of us. And on average, we have a tenure at Sevian of 15 years. So in essence, we like what we're doing um, and it's been sufficiently successful for us at least that um, we want to continue doing it. Is it 100 to 150 meetings before you make an investment? That's quite an engagement before you get involved. Yeah, it works for us. It's not, I just want to say it's not, my compliance people would uh, want me to say that's not in every single case, but um, that's in the majority. And um, it is what we're able to do because we have a tightly focused portfolio that's a bit more like private equity in terms of structure, 10 to 15 investments at a time. And um, it enables us to do this quite deep analysis, not only on the fundamentals of the company, but identifying things that we think that they could be doing differently to become better and more profitable over time. And, um, and essentially, we then bring that information to the company. Can I just ask you, in the way you organize yourself within Sevian, your head of sustainability. So is that a separate function that, that adds, I guess, to the, to the investment team? We don't have a separate function. So we're long-term owners of companies. We're working to, in our view, make them better and more sustainable over time. And so just as our case teams are analyzing the long-term fundamentals, 
and the prospects for investment candidates, um, it's natural to include in that assessment the sustainability opportunities and threats. And also when we prepare our value creation plans, just as we seek to identify improvements that we can help drive in strategy, structure, operations, financials, um, we now look for the same sort of sustainability linked opportunities as well. So that lives with our case team, case teams, but then we have a couple of people who are kind of tracking this across the portfolio. And um, that's part of the role that I play at Sevian. And would that bring us to the fundamental difference between a European activist investor and a US activist investor where you have this big engagement beforehand? You know, you've got some you really dig deep into the company and, and, and present to them an alternative approach. Is that would that be the main difference? Um, I don't think I'd characterize it anymore about as uh, Europe versus the US, but maybe we could say that there are many investors who get called activists who are really coming from more of an event-driven background, and they typically have relatively short-term capital structures, relatively short-term horizons, and their toolkit is usually comprised of various financial measures and things that can be achieved in a short period of time. And so this often leads them to swarming all over companies and trying to put them in play or getting jumbo dividends. And that might be appropriate for them. On the other side of the spectrum, there are a few activists, typically nowadays they're called constructive activists or constructivists. And there, at least in my own view, it is all about trying to make the companies better and thus more valuable. That is inherently a long-term process. And over a multi, we have an average holding period of around four years on a capital weighted basis. Over long-term, it's really more efficient and effective in our view, particularly in Europe, to work in an assertive way, but a constructive and positive and non-personalized sort of way. Um, while if you have a three-month investment horizon and you just want to put the company in play and hope it gets taken over, um, one could understand how you don't really care if you build a positive relationship. In fact, it might be better for that narrow goal to try to reduce the credibility of the company, um, which you can do through a more public and negative activism. Okay, and for what we're looking to discuss today, you need that long-term engagement, that long-term holding period to really get some change, if you like, get some of your ideas reflected from the company. I would maybe put it a different way, or I can talk about it in terms of the evolution of Sevian's own approach to sustainability and the climate issue. So from, from the very beginning of Sevian, we were working on improving companies, and thus we were working on improving the real governance of the company, meaning the effectiveness of the board and the management team. And um, the S and the, the E factors for us were really primarily risk factors that we could just stay away from because we had the luxury of this tightly focused portfolio. But about four or five years ago, we could see that the E and the S, and I think in Europe, especially the, the E, were becoming more and more important for our companies across their businesses. And as long-term owners, we needed to ensure that our companies were 
grasping the opportunities associated with this and dealing with the risks and say getting their um, productive capabilities in line for potentially higher um, carbon taxes and um, input prices and things of that nature. And what we found even in our own companies was a bit too much greenwashing um, and a bit not enough action, um, maybe talk, maybe nice sustainability reports, but we, we were not satisfied. And we looked more broadly past our own portfolio and we saw that, well, actually this is more or less the average company in Europe today. And in our experience of working to improve companies over the years, one of the key tools that we have used is improving alignment with management teams through the use of incentive packages and making sure that the all of our companies historically have had incentive packages, but we often found that they were not measuring the right things and they were ineffective in, in driving the outcomes that we as long-term owners actually wanted. So we would work to change those, whether we were in the board or not. So when we saw this issue of too much greenwashing um, and not enough real action, it was natural for us to think about the role of incentives. And, and here um, we, we came across a, a quite simple realization in retrospect, which is if, if we take climate measures, these are, these are measures that are um, going to bite in terms of targets 10, 15, 20 years in the future. And the average tenure of a CF CEO in the UK today is four years, according to the most recent data I've seen. And so it occurred to us, isn't it really almost crazy to expect CEOs who are in place today, who are gonna be gone in a couple of years on average to do what is necessary today in terms of investments that may be costly and that may have payback over a decade or get out of dirty businesses or account position them things, position themselves for an environment 10 years out in the future. Um, isn't it crazy to think that they're going to do that driven by just their morality? Um, or in my case, I don't believe these things are reflected in the share price of today. And therefore we started to work on using incentive plans as a way to anchor the necessary steps towards these long-term goals during the tenures of current CEOs. And so- Maybe just before we dive into some of the detail, just come go, go back up a little. Obviously you've got the experience at Sivian using REM over a long period of time. Charlie Munger said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And financial incentives are obviously very important, but they're not the only incentives. There's management that cares about their legacy, about their reputation, and some genuinely do care. Many do care about other stakeholders like, like employees and customers. Can you talk to us about how you've seen it work in the past when you put these incentives in place, how, there has, how that has impacted behavior and how it has driven value creation? Individuals care about many things, and um, some individuals will always do the right things, and incentives are irrelevant for them, but we still have them, and they're still there to do a job, and they're still there for the X percentage of individuals who are driven by incentives, and certainly in terms of companies that are already not doing well enough in terms of realizing their full potential, say, 
um, from an operating perspective or shareholder return perspective, um, we've been changing incentive plans because those incentive plans weren't working well enough. And so um, for us, it's the same in the sustainability world or the e-world. Yeah, there are companies that are already doing fantastically well in this area. There are perhaps not many of them. Um, and maybe those don't need to incorporate metrics in their incentive plans. Although it was interesting for us when we looked at, say, Schneider, which is often seen as one of the darlings of the sustainability world in Europe, um, both in terms of their performance, but also in terms of their alignments. Well, actually, they were one of the earliest companies to adopt an ESG metric in their pay. And whether it's chicken or egg, it's hard to say. But if a company like Schneider has felt it would be helpful, then if you look at your average company that isn't doing well enough, it's hard to argue that it wouldn't be a positive change provided it's done correctly, which is a big question. So, um, so for us, it was logical to, to come out with our own position, but actually make that a public position as well, which, which maybe just stepping back, maybe we should talk about in a more structured way as well, John. If I put it another way, we've got compensation acceptable in, in various quantums in different ways across Europe. As I said, the UK would be closer to the US, still quite a, a bit behind it. How accepting are individual countries or, or, or companies operating across Europe to, to maybe fundamentally change how they pay their management? I, I think we need, if we're talking specifically about um, ESG metrics, then we should talk specifically about ESG metrics. But first, as, as a general rule, um, yes, the quantum of pay might be higher in the UK than in, say, Sweden in some cases. But every country still has incentive plans that they use to direct behavior. And by and large, that's what they do, or that's certainly what they're designed to do. So there's no question of using financial incentives to direct reward incent behavior and create accountability. If we're speaking specifically about ESG metrics, um, what, what we observed was that there is a big there is a big um, range in terms of how common the metrics are. And there's a first glance, and then there's a deeper look. The UK was an earlier adopter in terms of adding ESG-related metrics to pay compared to the other countries in Europe. France was also um, very advanced. But in many cases, we would say the quality of those metrics made them practically useless in terms of driving real sustainability change. Many countries, many companies had health and safety metrics in their pay. That's important, particularly for manufacturing company. Um, obviously, you want to keep um, employee injuries to absolute minimum. Um, but having a metric on uh, health and safety um, Yes, it's important, as I said, especially for manufacturing companies, but it's not really what we have in mind when we're talking about driving long-term sustainability. So if you take those metrics out, then, then still you might have, maybe it was 20% of UK companies that had something um, less in France, less in other places, but even there, the quality of the metrics was quite poor. Very often, it was just a line item in a management scorecard which we would say is almost worse than nothing. It's another type of greenwashing sometimes, which 
perhaps we can come back to in this conversation. Okay, so that then drove you to the statement you made in 2001 as a firm where you really increased, I guess, the focus on linking remuneration with ESG. Correct. So we came to our own strong view um, in early 2021 that we should definitely be, be using ESG metrics with certain qualities um, to help drive and support sustainability at our companies. And we felt that this was something that was more important than just Sevian and our companies. And therefore, we made a public calling on this. And moreover, um, we said that we would be using our governance rights, including voting against pay plans to help drive this change. This is one of the really interesting and powerful aspects of using ESG metrics in pay in that we owners, we all at some point have effective vetoes over pay plans. And so um, we have the ability to say to companies, if you don't do this, we will not be supporting your pay plan. And this, can tell you from um, ourselves, Sevian, being in the boardrooms of companies, when something like this is attached to pay, it definitely gets a um, higher level of concentration in, in most boardrooms. And most shareholders by now are quite used to voting against pay plans that they don't like. And so it's a, it's a threat that's very credible for shareholders to make in essence. And, and one of the things that we could see was that at companies and at shareholders, there, there were so many um, people doing good work and putting in countless hours to discuss sustainability on both sides and to try and advance it. But too often those discussions and those topics and those sustainability reports were not making it into the boardrooms and they were not sufficiently important for management teams. So they were disconnected. And by bringing all of this in pay, particularly with a credible threat from shareholders that they could vote against a pay plan that didn't have the right sort of ESG metrics, it was making it all much more tangible, much more real, and in our view, much more likely to matter to companies and therefore much more likely to happen. What we've seen is votes on remuneration being the most contentious part of AGM resolutions. Corporates are in, 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 you know, they've been raising this as an issue that the relationship then overall is getting a little bit more frayed. I think the nub of the issue here, or maybe one of the problems is that investors haven't thought out enough in a coherent way what they are asking of companies. I say, I, I think there are a number of issues here for, for different investors and, um, one of them for some is just the quantum and they have a fundamental problem with the CEO being paid 2 million pounds and a worker being paid 40,000. Um, and it's easy to, to under, understand that um, issue. Um, of course, companies have lots of arguments on the other side in terms of how the pay needs to be competitive, et cetera. But that's definitely one of the major issues, particularly in the cost of living crisis that we're in the midst of. Um, secondly, though, is um, a question of whether the alignment is correct and whether the plans are good enough. And definitely um, in companies that we have looked at that at least have not been performing well enough, we can often see 
a history of poor alignment and peer groups that are not appropriate and incentive plans that are targeting the right things. And we have the luxury of focusing our whole team just on these two or three new investments a year and the 10 to 15 that we own. So it's a bit easier for us than for many other investors with much larger portfolios to do that work. But I think in, in those two areas, that's where most of the frustration is arising and that is reflected in the increasing number of no votes. We'll come on to the framework that you've helped develop in a moment, but I do think that is a problem where we're such a disparate group of shareholders with different size investments, different uh, amounts of the company that we, that we own on behalf of our investors that we all come to the table with different ideas, different levels of knowledge. And therefore, when we face the companies, we're asking them for different things. And I often think that the, the remuneration chair has got a very difficult job in balancing not only the needs and wants and desires of the management team, but also the shareholders that come with often very different ideas. Um, I agree with you that they have a difficult job and um, shareholders have many different views as, as we've discussed. And um, yeah, they have to make it acceptable for the management team, that, but the remuneration committee should be reflecting the strategy set by the board, depending on the country. Some, some people will tell you management teams should be setting the strategy and the board should be ratifying it. Others will say, in, in our view, typically, it's actually the board that should be setting the strategy. Um, and that should then be reflected in the targets and the ambition level um, should be high, absolutely. And um, so it is a difficult job. This ends part one of my conversation with Harlan Zimmerman. In part two, we delve into the detail on how to incorporate net zero commitments into executive remuneration plans, expanding on the need for significant, measurable, and transparent metrics to support decarbonization and clear links to public commitments on net zero. I hope you enjoyed this first part of the conversation and take the opportunity to listen to part two. Thank you and goodbye.